0: morning. Good morning to everybody at home as well. Please take out your Bibles and begin turning in them to Genesis chapter 18. We are on to the next part of the story of Abraham, which we are seeing is ultimately a story of covenant, which is ultimately about relationship with God. Covenant is just relationship, a story of, of what God is going to do For, in, and through Abraham to bring about his glorious plan to solve our sin problem so that we can be restored to relationship with him. That's the whole point of the Abraham story. Covenant. And that's the whole point of this chapter as well. All of chapter 18 and 19 go together. We have one big long story that will take us a number of weeks to get through. And it's an infamous story that is often considered out of context. We know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah, we know why it happens, but maybe we're less sure of what it all has to do with the rest of the story of Abraham. What does the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, a story that we're very uncomfortable with today, a story that our culture hates today, what does this story have to do with Abraham, and what does this story have to do with the covenant that God is making with Abraham? And the answer, as our chapter makes clear, it'll take us a number of weeks to explain it, but the answer, as our chapter makes clear, is justice. Genesis chapter 18 is about justice. Look at verse 19. For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice first use of that word in the Bible, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And looking down at verse 25, you'll see the famous line, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. This passage is ultimately about the justice of God and then the justice of God's people. And what we want to seek to answer is, well, what does all that have to do with covenant? Covenant? Well, everything, I'm going to argue, as I'm going to make the claim that the condition of the covenant is justice. And so, we come today to a very timely text, because everyone is talking about justice right now. No justice, no peace. Um, So I have the privilege of marching directly into the minefield of our current cultural moment, seeking to humbly attempt to teach on justice. But my goal simply, not to sort everything out, my goal is by God's grace to attempt uh, to do the best that I can to stick to the text. There is great safety and security in God's word. And then to seek to explain what it means while then maybe occasionally venturing out into the dangerous waters and seeking to apply God's word to our current cultural moment. So pray for me and be patient with me because I'm probably going to get something wrong. Um, But we've all witnessed uh, the terrible injustice that has befallen George Floyd and are reminded of so many other uh, examples of that. And everyone is rightly calling for justice. Everyone recognizes the necessity and the need for justice. That is good. But we need to be careful because even the universal agreement on the need for justice can be problematic because, as Socrates laments, a long time ago, justice, if only we knew what it was. And then as the great uh, Thomas Sowell writes in his book, Cosmic Justice, he says, one of the few subjects on which we all seem to agree is the need for justice. But our agreement is only seeming because we mean such different things by the same word. Whatever moral principle each of us believes in, we call justice. So, we are only talking in a circle when we say that we advocate justice, unless we specify just what conception of justice we have in mind. This is especially so today, and he's writing like 20 years ago, when so many advocate what they call social justice, often with great passion, but with no definition. So, that's our goal this morning, in part, is to give this word, is to give justice some definition. Let's, let's look at God's Word and seek to understand what it teaches about justice. I am not going to answer all your questions. I'm not going to talk about every aspect of every issue uh, there out there right now, nor should I because I'd get something wrong and it would just be a disaster. But if we stick to the text and what is clear and right and true, my hope is simply to give you a basic sort of biblical framework through which you can hopefully start to, to read and consider all of the justice talk that is out there So words really matter we want to be careful about what words that we use and so let's start off by making sure that we understand what scripture means by justice so what we're going to do is we're going to take two weeks on chapter 18 and then we're going to come back and look at chapter 19 all of it's about justice and we're going to do chapter 18 these first two weeks in a weird order we're going to do the beginning and the end of this story this week, and we're going to start off first by looking at God's justice. This has to be our starting point in our foundation. There can be no justice without this. And so then next week, we're going to come back and look at the heart, the middle of the passage, more at man's justice, and specifically the connection between covenant and justice justice. So if we get to the end this week, you're like, hey, you didn't tell me about all the things right now and am i supposed to think about them. Well, hold on. Uh, we've got to establish God's justice first, and then uh, so many of the conversations don't first establish this main point, that God is the standard of justice. So we want to seek to look at him and what it means for God to be just. We're going to look at the God of covenant justice this week, and then we're going to come back next week and then look at covenant justice itself. What does it mean to do justice and to do righteousness? So this this is a wonderful text. I finished the previous service very dissatisfied with my comprehension of this wonderful text. So I'm not going to do it justice. Um, But uh, we're going to do everything that we can to establish two simple points. That's all I want to do this morning. From verse 14, the first part of the story, we want to simply establish the fact that God is able to do anything. We first have to establish God's absolute power. That's where we're going to start. Then in verse 25, skipping the middle, we're going to see that God is just in everything. And so we have to establish God's absolute and perfect justice, his power, and then his justice. And then only once we have those two important pillars, that foundation laid, will we then be ready to come back and look at our call as God's people to do God's justice in anything and in everything everything. So that's the goal. God's justice today, our response to God's justice, living justly. um, That's what we'll look at next week. Um, But let's read the chapter first. This is the most important part. This is God's inspired word that he gave to us for this day. I'm going to read the whole of Genesis chapter 18. It's a little long, but it's narrative and it's wonderful and it's interesting. Um, So I'll read it for you, but I want you to pay attention because this is God's word. And this is what he wants to say to you this morning. Genesis 18, and the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as Abraham sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant, let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and said, Quick, three sias of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, "After I am worn out and my lord is old, shall I have pleasure?" the Lord said to Abraham. Why did Sarah laugh and say, "Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son." But Sarah denied it, saying, "I did not laugh, for she was afraid." He said, "No, but you did laugh." Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Oh, suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it. If I find 30 there, he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this once suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place you would bow with me and let's let's go to the lord first in the word of prayer father we thank you for your word father we thank you uh, for this text written down 2400 years ago this text that took place over 3000 years ago father this story that in your providence and sovereignty you have perfectly preserved and recorded for us so that we could hear it on this day father teach us uh, through your word Father, we believe that it is living and active. Uh, We believe that it is your word for us today. And so I pray that you would help me to simply get out of the way of your word. I pray that your word would be clear. I pray that I would say nothing to confuse uh, your word. I pray that you would show us your great power and that you would show us your perfect justice. And I pray that you would at the same time then give us a great delight for your wonderful mercy and compassion and kindness to us. Father, conform us, conform our thinking in accordance with your word, and I ask that you would work now uh, through it. Help the preaching of your word, Lord, and please help the hearing of your word, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, point number one. God is able to do anything. Now, before our text gets to the justice of God, it first establishes the power of God, and the two go hand in hand. There can be no ultimate justice without ultimate power. But even more remarkably, look at the context in which that power is asserted. Look at verse 1. Again, the Lord appears to Moses. Don't breeze past that. That's important. 17.1, the Lord appeared to Abram. 15.1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 12.1, now the Lord said to Abram. God keeps doing this. He is the God who comes to his people. He's the God who speaks and shows Abraham has heard from God, and he has seen God. But remember the case that I made a couple of weeks ago. John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. Well, again, here's Abraham seeing God. So, whenever anyone sees God or hears God, they are seeing the Son. And they are hearing the Son of God, who is what? The image of of the invisible God, that's what you see, and he is the word of God, that's what you hear. So when God appears and speaks, it is God's son. We sometimes read the Old Testament. I grew up in a context where the Old Testament's this thing, New Testament, and then we get to Jesus. So sometimes we read the Old Testament. Well, you know, where's Jesus? Right here, this, this is it, this is where he is. This is the son, uh, as Calvin writes in the Institutes. Holy men of old knew God only by beholding him, In his son, as in a mirror. When I say this, I mean that God has never manifested himself to men in any other way than through the Son. That is, his soul, wisdom, light, and truth. God is manifesting himself here to Abraham. Therefore, this must be the Son, who is the only way that God reveals himself and shows himself and speaks. So I want you to keep that in mind. I think that's going to be important, and we'll we'll circle back around to it at the end. Remember, this passage is ultimately about justice. We want to understand how that connects to the covenant. And here we have the very one that the covenant is ultimately about. The one that is promised. The seed. The son. God's son coming to Abraham to speak to him about the promise. He's going to reaffirm the promise. And then he's going to speak to him about justice. So keep that in mind. We'll come back to that at the end. So God in the sun appears again. Verse 1, it's hot. Abraham is still living in a tent. He is still by the oaks of Mamre. This is where Abraham settled all the way back in chapter 13, verse 18, in the context of the story of Lot choosing to settle in Sodom. So we're being given a little hint on where this text is going. We're starting to circle back to Lot and Sodom after a three-chapter chapter Hiatus. Also, what's beginning here is a contrast between Abraham and Lot. Uh, Lot, in 19.1, will be sitting at the gate of Sodom when two men approach. Here is Abraham sitting at the door of his tent when, behold, verse 2, three men were standing in front of him. Why? Three men. Who are these three men? Uh, good question. We don't we won't have time to get into all the different arguments. I think the simplest answer is that one is the Lord, God the Son, and the other two are angels. If you look at verse 22, we saw the two men move on while the Lord stays behind with Abraham. Then in 19 verse 1, we'll see those two men go to Sodom. And then in verse 15 of chapter 19, we'll see those two men called angels. And so it seems most likely that what we have here is the Son and then two of God's messengers, two of God's angels, and they have come to Abraham. What is Abraham's response? Look at verse 2. Abraham runs to meet them. Keep in mind, 100 years old, right? Old guy can still move here. But, but more importantly, it was not dignified and culturally appropriate for older men to run. But Abraham runs, and he bows down. Before the men. Again, an expression of of respect and and of submission. It's not entirely certain how long it takes for him to figure out who exactly this is, but I think he figures it out pretty quickly. So, verse 3, he speaks respectfully, O Lord, he identifies himself as their servant. And then in verse 4, he offers them generous hospitality, water, rest. Verse 5, a morsel of bread. Uh, But then in verses 6 through 8, we see he, he rushes off. And he prepares, prepares for them a lavish feast. So Abraham is going above and beyond and welcoming. And we're going to see the contrast between Abraham and Lot as we get to chapter 19. But look at the end of verse 8, because I don't think this gets uh, paid much attention to. He stood by them under the tree while they ate. I don't know. Ex- there's more to that than I understand. I don't haven't all figured out yet, uh, but it's big. First off, Abraham doesn't eat. He stands. But second of all, God does eat. Everything I just said is true. Here's God the Son. Here's the three of them, including God the Son, eating. God has appeared to Abraham already. God will appear many other times throughout the rest of the Old Testament in the Son. But nowhere else are we told that God eats. This is the only time this happens. Until, of course, the Incarnation. And Jesus frequently eating with his friends. In the Gospels, here God eats the only time in the Old Testament with his friend Abraham. Abraham is called the friend of God three times in Scripture, and no one else is given that specific title. And so, this text is often used as kind of all right. Here's look. Here's hospitality, and so here are five points on how to be hospitable and how to serve. All those are kind of le- good, fine, legitimate, secondary application. But the whole point of this episode is first to convey just kind of a, a picture, a sense of great love and great intimacy. This is intensely personal fellowship. God has come himself to the home of Abraham and Sarah, and he sits and he eats. And it gets even better. Look at verse 9. God says, Where is Sarah? Your wife? Well, she's still in the tent. Uh, this is probably a, a cultural thing. Men and women didn't generally eat together um, 3,000 years ago. It was considered inappropriate. But then he asks her by her name, which also culturally would have been a faux pas. Uh, you didn't speak about another man's wife, you didn't address another man's wife. But here, God has no problem addressing Sarah by name. And in so, by do- so doing, he is again indicating great care and concern and intimacy uh, with Sarah. And he does so further in verse 10. Look at verse 10. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah hears all of this. We're reminded again in verse 11 that Sarah is old. We've already been told that she was barren all the way back in chapter 11, and now she's doubly so The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That's a very specific biological thing in the Hebrew that the text doesn't quite uh, do justice to. So it's very specific about what has happened here. It is humanly and physically impossible for Sarah to have a child. And so Sarah laughs in disbelief. Now, what's going on here? Think about it. Didn't all this just happen in the last chapter? Remember, God has already said all of this to Abraham. So what's, what's the deal? Did maybe Abraham not tell Sarah? I don't know, but I, could, I can buy the possibility. I mean, how many times have I done the same thing? You know, come in and be like, uh, hey, you didn't tell me so-and-so. Oh, uh, yeah. Whoops. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, I'm getting better at it, but it's a frequent failure of husbands to communicate important things to their wives. Um, but I just, in my defense, I've never pulled an Abraham, at least— Uh, You didn't tell me that God appeared to you and changed my name and told you that kings and peoples were going to come from me and that I was going to have a son and his name is Isaac? Thanks a lot, Abraham. I I don't know if that's what happened or not. I'm not entirely sure. It could have been that. Or maybe Sarah, just like Abraham, was slow to believe. She had been waiting for so long. There had been so much disappointment that maybe it's it's just plain old doubt that is plaguing her. But, I mean, if they didn't know previously who the visitor was, they have to know now because he knows her thoughts. She tries to hide her disbelief. He, he corrects her. And verse 14 is, is the main idea that this text is driving at is anything too hard for the Lord? That's kind of like the culmination of all the obstacles from 12 until here. Problem, 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 obstacle, 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 climax. Main point is anything too hard. For the Lord. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. God is able to do anything. 25 years. I guess at this point, it has been 24 years from the first promise. I mean, 25 from first promise to final fulfillment. God had told Abraham and Sarah something about what he was going to do about this son 24 years ago, and they have waited and waited and waited. There has been obstacle after obstacle, human failure after human failure. God has made it painfully clear for 24 years that if this is going to happen, it will only happen by his hand. Remember last week, Ishmael, the flesh availeth nothing. So sometimes, quite often, God chooses to let everything else that you are tempted to depend upon collapse around you so that you will then be able to then to learn the life-giving lesson that it is all of grace that it is all him that you are to put no confidence in the flesh no confidence in yourself no confidence in the world that your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness and so abraham and sarah have waited God has worked, and now it is evident and it cannot be argued. He is their only hope. If the promise is going to be fulfilled, God must do it. And, good news, he is able to do it. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a wonderful word. If you actually look down at the footnote at the bottom of the page, you'll see that, in fact, wonderful is a possible translation of the word hard. In fact, that's the more common translation of this word in the Hebrew Scriptures. In the Psalms, this is the word that is frequently translated as wonders or wondrous deeds or wonderful works. The word means kind of wonderful in the sense of extraordinary, extraordinary, beyond ordinary, or supernatural, above and beyond that which is natural. We find the word famously in Psalm 139, verse 6, "...such knowledge." is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. What's, the, what's too wonderful there for David? What, what knowledge? What's, it's the knowledge of God's intimate knowledge of him. The fact that God perfectly sees and knows David, knowing even his thoughts, knowing a word even before it is on David's tongue. That's extraordinary. That's wonderful. And so the point is that God is perfect in power. He's perfect in wisdom. He's perfect in authority. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omni-sovereign. That one's not a word. I made that one up. But omni just means all. So God is all-sovereign. And so he is able to do anything. We think far too little of God, uh, both in quantity and quality. I found that a problem with myself in in recent um, days and, and in the current kind of circumstances we find ourselves. We fail to think of God with the frequency that He deserves. We, th- we fail to think of God as the lens through which we are to understand everything. How long can we go um, with uh, thinking of ourselves, uh, considering our world, without thinking of those things in light of or in relationship to the God of this world and the God of ourself? So we must strive to discipline ourselves first to think of and on God more. How would my supposed belief in this God of this text affect my view of our current circumstances? I guess it's an important basic thing that I often fail to do. But second, we fail to think of God with the reverence and the awe that he deserves. I guess that's what I'm trying to establish with this first point. Nothing is too big, too hard, or too wonderful for him. He is God, and what we're seeing from this text is that he wants his people To know that. We said last week in our first point that God wants Sarah to know that she is His and that He is working for her good, and now we're seeing that He is able to bring about and accomplish that good. God continually comes to His people and confronts and comforts His people by reaffirming His promises. And his presence again and again and again. We forget he speaks. We forget he speaks. That's why he's given us this and preserved for us his perfect word that is living and active, that is always speaking, always promising, always mediating presence. Right? God wants his people to know him and rest in him. And so to do that, you have to first know him as almighty God who can do anything. Listen, until you are absolutely convinced of God's absolute sovereignty, faith will always be a bit of a struggle for you. He's, he's powerful. But don't miss that he is oh so personal as well. Right? He appears to them. He, he speaks to them. He, he eats in their home, their food. You know, that's what's so amazing about our God, the God of the Bible. There is no other God like this. Uh, every other God is either absolutely transcendent and distant and far and big, or is very, very close and personal and intimate and oddly a lot like us. It is only God where you see both of these things perfectly come together, powerful and personal, transcendent and eminent, big and near. And so here we have... And remember, I think this is the son that is eating with Abraham. So here we have in these first 15 verses what Jonathan Edwards wonderfully called the admirable conjunctions of diverse excellencies in Christ Jesus. I love that phrase. Admirable, it's nice, it's good, it's beautiful. Conjunction, right, these things are coming together. They're diverse excellencies, all the power, but all the goodness and intimacy and kindness all coming together in God. Christ Jesus. He's personal and powerful, and all of that power he uses for the purpose of being with and blessing his people. And so to understand justice, we have to first understand power and authority. And so on this text, on justice, God comes in, he affirms his love for his people, his identification with his people, and at the same time, he affirms his power and ability to do So God is powerful. But that then raises a question, especially today. Especially when power is the bad guy. Um, Our our current culture is is anti-power, sort of. Maybe we'll talk about that sometime. I don't know. Um, But right now we're seeing that God has clearly affirmed and demonstrated his power, but we all know that power can be perverted. We've just seen power terribly abused in the tragic injustice that has befallen George Floyd. And that was a horrible abuse of power that resulted in a great injustice. And so we cannot just say God is powerful and then leave it at that. We cannot stop with bare power. The next question then is, well, is God just got the power? What about the justice? Point number two, God is just in everything. All right, so we're skipping to the end of the story. The middle will be next week, where we'll see verses 16 through 21. God is bringing Abraham into his counsel and his confidence. We'll see why next time. But God has said in verse 20 that there has been a great outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah due to their very grave sin. In verse 21, God declares that he will first examine that evidence to see if the report is true. And so then in verse 22, the two angels head off to do just that. Uh, we'll return to them in two weeks. Well, we'll see them in chapter 19, verse 1, going into Sodom to do what God has just said. So there's a direct connection between uh, justice and then this, this evidence of injustice. And so God comes and examines and looks at it. He's doing everything that he's doing in this part of the story to demonstrate the justice of what he is about to do. So the two angels... Head off the Lord, the Son, remains behind with Abraham, and this then begins one of the most interesting exchanges in the whole of Scripture. There's nothing like this anywhere else. I'm going to completely be honest that I don't completely understand everything that's going on here and the depths of what's happening here. I'm still sorting out this wonderful text, but this is unique. Uh, Abraham understands what's happening. Uh, Abraham would have been familiar with the injustice of Sodom. Remember, Abraham knows these people. Back in chapter 14, Abraham has already rescued them and saved them. So he would have been familiar uh, with their injustice, um, and he would have also been equally familiar with the holiness and the justice of God. So Abraham understands what's coming. And so he says to God in verse 23, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? stop there this is an important place to begin what is abraham's concern there's actually some debate Uh, you'll read different things i think from the text i think it's fairly clear he says will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked abraham's concern is the righteous we're getting to justice this passage is about the question of justice And here's where we already have to start diverging somewhat from the world's understanding of justice. One of the great things that's so hard to do is to be discerning and wise and say, yes, justice, absolutely, this is what we must stand for and stand with, but let's be careful about everything else that comes with that. Because Abraham does not argue that it is right for the wicked to be judged, because he knows that it is. We're about to affirm the perfect justice of God— And then we're going to see, that we cannot forget the context of chapter 19. Then we're going to see the demonstration and the execution of that perfect justice of God in the next chapter when Sodom and Gomorrah are wiped out. And the whole point of this is that that is justice. And Abraham's concern is the question of the justice of the righteous being caught up in that justice. And so verse 24, Abraham begins... What if there are 50 righteous in the city? Will you not spare the city for the 50 righteous in the city? And then he clarifies what he means in verse 25. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing. What thing? He he tells us, he tells us his concern. What thing? To put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. So this isn't a question at all about God's justice in passing judgment on evil. Abraham knows that that's precisely what justice is. What Abraham is wrestling with is the question of God's judgment and the treatment of the righteous. It sounds fairly similar to to the book of Job, doesn't it? Ultimately, as we'll see when we get there in two weeks, ultimately, Abraham is interceding and advocating for Lot. Um, and we'll see that next time. But look back to the end of verse 25, because here's the main idea. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Just. Mishpat. Uh, that's the Hebrew word translated just here. It's used for the first time in Scripture, up in verse 19, where God commands Abraham to teach justice. That's, that's next week. What does that mean? And where you see the word judge there in verse 25, that's actually the word Shafat. You can hear similarities, Shafat mishpat. They're, they're built upon each other. And the word both basically means judgment, right? So the judge judges. Quite simple. We're going to see next week the connection between righteousness and justice, because God's going to command Abraham to teach righteousness and justice. Wait a second, how do, what do those two things mean? Are they different things? And then frequently in other spots in the Old Testament, you're going to see the word that we have there, justice, translated. No, the word we have translated righteousness there, sedek, translated as justice. So how does this all go together? What is righteousness? What is justice? But for now, justice most simply is an outworking of God's Holiness, Justice is an outworking of God's holiness. Holiness is sort of the, the attribute of attributes. It's a sort of summary attribute. God is completely other. We just talked about his transcendence. He is set apart. He is morally perfect. And he is beautifully glorious. And because he is all of that, he must also then be righteous. And kind of the root of that word simply means straight or right or conforming to a standard. And that means that God being righteous means that he conforms to his standard of his own perfect holiness. And thus, the outworking of his holiness is that he always acts in accord with that perfect and right nature. God always acts in accord with his perfect, holy, and right nature. And so the justice of God is simply God acting rightly in every circumstance so if you're looking at the King James you'll read that verse it says shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right that's that's justice it's that simple uh, justice is perfect rightness in all things a couple of verses uh, listen to Deuteronomy 32 4 the rock I had to resist a Dwayne Johnson joke here I'm better than that Deuteronomy 32:4. the rock his work is perfect For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Pastor Mike read for us earlier, Psalm chapter 9, verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. God's work is perfect. He's perfectly righteous, right, and thus all his ways, every interaction, every treatment, uh, anything that he does with and for mankind is always and only perfectly just. Therefore, justice, as the Puritan Thomas Watson says, is simply giving everyone his due. Justice is giving everyone his due. Now, that's basically correct, and except that God doesn't owe us anything, right? we are due nothing uh, but you know what Watson means. Justice most basically means to treat people equitably. It's, it's simply fairness. And, and here's one of the ways that we know that there is a God and that we are created in his image and likeness. I never once sat down in the instruction of my young daughters and taught them while I was trying to teach them Dada and Mama. I never taught them to say, that's not fair. And I've, I have no idea where they would have learned that phrase. I think it's just self-generated. Um, they, they apply it sinfully and selfishly at times. But each of those beautiful little girls who I missed and I'm going to see tonight, each one of them created in the image of a just God, have the principles of justice written on and wired into their hearts. Justice is Fairness. So when I buy them a big chip cookie, one of Emma's primary markers of adulthood is when one gets to eat a whole chip cookie by themselves. I get a whole chip cookie and more. They only get half because it's the size of their head. But when I am cutting that cookie in half for Emma and Lila to split, just watch Emma's intensely focused eyes on the exact placement of that fork. Ah, no no, 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 a little bit more to the left. To the right, the direct, direct direction of the cut, you're veering a little bit that way, right? comparing and contrasting, weighing and measuring in the balance. Again, part of that is sinful selfishness, but part of that also, though, is her inbuilt sense of justice. Now listen to Romans 2, verses 5 and 6. Uh, we'll pay attention to the end of it is what I'm getting at. Paul writes there, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's the point I'm trying to make. He will render to each one according to his works. God renders to each one according to, based upon, in proportion to his works. That's justice, right? Right rendering according to works. Or as we'll look at more next week. Again, we're kind of looking more at vertical justice This week, and then we're going to transition to look more at horizontal justice next week when we see our call and our command to be just in light of our just God. Since God treats everyone rightly and thus fairly, we are then called in his image and likeness simply as people, but then especially as his people redeemed and remade in the image and likeness of his Son, we are then called to treat everyone rightly and thus fairly. We are called to do what Watson says, to give everyone his due. That's justice. And since we are all equally created in the image and likeness of God, yet also equally fallen, but originally created equally in the image and likeness of God, then our desire must be for all to be treated equally under the law. That's just basically what justice is. And so, again, when we see things like we have... And when we have a significant population of people, a significant population of our people that we love and we care about, who often seem to have a different experience under the same law, uh, I I ran out of time. Maybe next week. uh, I have two very extensive stories um, of my experience with the police, and they're very interesting. I would like to share them sometime, uh, because I'm sure they're very different. Um, Doing very, very bad things uh, and being treated very, very well. When I was young, when I was young. Um, So maybe we'll talk about that. But when we have that experience among our people, we've got to at least pay attention to that. We've got to listen to that. We have to. Basic Christian things. Romans 12. We have to weep with those who weep. Uh, I love that chapter. We are commanded to let love be genuine, to abhor what is evil, to hold fast what is good, to love one another with brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honor, to not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Listen, we can at least agree that we have to do that. Isn't I'm, I know that I'm wrong here on some of these things. i had just been somewhat overwhelmed um, by just out there. I don't know what to do often about out there. I don't have all the answers uh, to out there. Just, it sure feels like everything's falling apart, uh, doesn't it? Um, and anyway, I'm probably not the one that's going to change those things. Um, I'm probably not going to be able to solve racism in our country. I'm not going to be the one to fix our government and all of those things. Um, and so, again, what I can do, at least, again, this is the foundation. This is the start, and then we'll look at more next week. What I can do and where I have to start is that I can do everything possible to love Christ's church, right? And to love those specifically that God has given me. We need to start there, and at a minimum, make sure we're doing that thing before our concern is change the world. Remember covenant. um, It's commitment. I am yours, and you are mine. That's what each and every one of us have said to everyone who has united together with this body and covenant membership. And so we have to start there before we get to the other stuff. That doesn't mean we don't need to get to the other stuff, but that means if we're not doing this core basic thing first, if we're failing to love one another and care for one another, we're not gonna be particularly good at loving everyone else out there as well. So I want us to start off by focusing maybe on double downing doubling down on loving each other better and better and better while combining that with our command to make disciples by preaching the gospel and then seeking together to understand all right what does it mean to be a light and what does it mean to be a lampstand what does it mean to love our neighbors in the context in which we find ourselves so we'll try and tackle some of the fun next week please pray for me Um, There are errors on the right to avoid, and there are errors on the left. And I will probably fail to navigate that path well. But here's what we're trying to establish today. We can't forget the main idea. Justice. Biblical justice. Uh, What I'm going to call next week covenant justice. If you need a word to put in front of justice, let's do covenant justice. We need to define it further in its outworkings horizontally, and that's what we want to do, but before we can do that, Before we can do that, we must first begin by affirming that God is just. He is justice. He is the foundation and standard of justice itself. And thus, there can be no true justice apart from God. Again, that doesn't mean that we don't desire uh, for our justice system to improve. That doesn't mean that we don't pray for and long for and do what we can to seek and make those changes. But it does mean that we have to recognize that there is only ultimate justice found with him. Um, And this is why, listen, Proverbs 28.5 is an important verse for right now. I appreciated Pastor Mike's prayer. I haven't seen a single person reference Proverbs 28.5 in the whole course of the last couple of weeks. Proverbs 28.5 says, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. So again, here's why we have to be so careful. Uh, We have to have the love and the compassion and the empathy, and we have to care, and we have to listen, and we have to learn, but we do have to be very careful of what we yoke ourselves to and what we connect ourselves to with. We can say, oh, what a terrible abuse of authority. We cannot say, oh, authority is bad. Let's get rid of authority. Right? And so we have to be very wise and discerning, and I don't have it all figured out. Again, pray for me as I continue to search and seek through uh, these things. And so we have to affirm what God clearly says about justice, and we cannot let it be divorced from God and His holiness and His law. He is how we know what is just. And so, again, This is the the fact that the first use of the word justice comes up in this context is significant because we're getting the whole point of this chapter is chapter 19. Um, Sometimes what our world declares is the most just thing is the very thing that God specifically declares as unjust and passes his judgment upon that thing. So we have to keep that in mind. Again, I'm not talking specifically about the George Floyd situation. That's obviously injustice, and that needs to be righted. That wrong must be made right, and changes need to happen. All I'm simply saying is we need to be careful about what we connect ourselves with, because God's comprehensive definition of justice is going to be different than the world's definition of justice. And so all we're trying to do is seek to wed and weld ourselves to God as our standard of justice. More on that. Next to, I'm, I'm running out of time. Last thing, and I will be brief, and I will let you leave. Look over at 22 and 23 again. Again, I don't think I understand these verses. I'm still sorting it out, but I want to close uh, with this. I want to close on some good news. It's this whole strange bartering thing. What's this about? It's not bartering. People say, oh, look, this means we're to intercede for the wicked. No, that's <laughs> it's that's not what the point of this passage is. Um, there's a different thing being emphasized here. And so Abraham, you know, what about 50 righteous? Oh, well, you know, hold on. I know there aren't 50. What about 45? We destroy the city. Well, hold on. What about 40, 30, 20, 10? What's the point of all this? Well, the point is in large part verse 21. Okay, This is not about Abraham and his interceding, what he's doing. This is God demonstrating the justice of what he is about to do. God is about to do this big thing that the world is going to hate. And so before it, we're seeing this demonstration of the absolute justice justice of God and the absolute justness of him passing his judgment on evil and wickedness. That's the ultimate point of what's happening here. It's not about Abraham bargaining. 40, 30, 20, 10. No, no, no. None. That's the point. It's Romans three ten. None is righteous. No, not one. We're going to see Lot and his, his two daughters spared... Then we're going to see what they do after that at the end of chapter 19 uh, and see what they really are like, which means that it is only because of Lot's connection to righteous Abraham that he is spared. It is only through the intercession of another. It's all the way back to Genesis 12, 3, where God has told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, those who are connected to you, Lot, and him who dishonors you, those disconnected from you, Sodom, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is a further demonstration that Abraham is the one through whom God is going to execute his plan of rescue and reconciliation. And so here standing before this great but wicked city, we are being reminded Genesis 6 that every intention of the thought of man's heart is only evil continually. None is Righteous? What about 30? What about 20? What about 20? What about one? Remember, that's the whole point of the Abrahamic covenant. You have to read eight, end of 18 and 19 and like of 12, 15 and 17. What is God doing? God is looking. He's been looking from Genesis 3, 15 for one truly righteous man. And that's what this covenant is all about. About That's what I struggled to explain last week. God is promising one righteous man, the seed, the son, that will fulfill the one righteous demand. Relationship requires righteousness. God has said, walk before me and be blameless. You must be righteous to be in relationship with me. There must be justice. The law has been broken again and again and again. And since God is just... That must be dealt with. And so that's again what God is demonstrating. Genesis 17 has two things going on. You have the covenant with the circumcision representing the condition of perfect obedience. We're going to see that come out in the Mosaic covenant. And then you have the promise. You have Isaac. You have the son, the seed, pointing forward to the new covenant, the covenant of grace, to the one who is going to come in and do this and who is going to come in and fulfill by perfectly obeying and fulfilling the condition uh, that God requires. And so here we have one righteous person. Is there anyone who can keep the covenant? 40, 30, 20. Is there anyone that can keep the law that we are required to keep? And then the whole of Sodom and Gomorrah are wiped out because there are none righteous. But there's one. Think about it. it. Listen, if we're right... If the Son is the image and word of God, therefore any time you see or hear God in the Old Testament, you see and hear the Son. Here Abraham sees God and hears from God. So it must be the Son standing before Abraham as Abraham whittles the number down. 30, 20, 10, 9. He is doing so before the very one. Abraham recognizes that there are none righteous as he stands before the only one who is righteous. The very one that God has made this whole covenant with Abraham to get to, the seed. He is there. He is in the very center of this passage that is all about the justice of God. The justice of God demonstrated most clearly in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, the one promised in this covenant with Abraham, the one promised. I think this is amazing. He's standing before Abraham, the one who would fulfill all righteousness, the one who would vindicate the justice of God, because none is righteous. If we get justice, every single one of us gets death and hell. And that's why this one, in this story that's this juxtaposition of covenant and justice, that's why he stands right at the confluence of it right at the middle, because this one comes to take our death in hell, to keep the covenant condition for us. You must be perfectly obedient, perfectly righteous, and since we haven't been, to also then pay the covenant penalty for us when he is cut off, when he dies, all so that we could live. It's it's so beautiful. I'm not doing it justice. Christ gets God's justice so that we get God's mercy and people we have to start here in any discussion of justice we have to start with the God who is just and is the perfect standard of justice we have to understand that if we ourselves me if I get justice my due then I get death because the wages of sin is death and I have sinned and all have sinned and so it's the perfect justice of God that then makes the precious mercy of God In Christ Jesus, so wonderful. And it's that that gives meaning and purpose and fuel uh, for our whole lives. I'll stop with this. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Listen to this in light of what we've just read. Think of Sodom standing before the judgment of God in Genesis 18. They're standing before the Son. Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What is due? That's, that's justice. But in our cases, our spiritual cases, that is not what we want, because we do not want to be standing before the perfectly holy God without Christ, not clothed and covered with his perfect righteousness. Listen, that's the bad news of justice, the fact that the judge of all the earth will do what is just is not good news for those who are evil. And so what do we do knowing that that's true? We do, verse 12, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He says, be spared the justice of God by grace through faith, throwing yourself on the mercy of Christ who has already received the justice of God. you. That's our mission and our message. That's what God's justice must motivate us to do first and foremost. Listen, that doesn't then mean, we're going to give a whole week to it next week, that doesn't then mean that this horizontal awareness of God's justice and experience of God's mercy doesn't then flow out into horizontal justice, where the God who is just is making us like him, the God who is good and loving is making us like him, then should be making us, we should be just and good and loving and fair, and we should desire those things for any and everyone. So that's what we're going to see. But we have to start with this foundation. We have to start on this thing on which we can all agree. God is all-powerful. He's able to do anything. And so for there to be justice, we have to have that first. And he is just in everything. Everything that God does is justice. He is perfect in power. And he is perfect in justice. Therefore, we have to start with a recognition that he is our standard. We must look to him first and foremost and his law as our definition of justice. And then we read everything through him and through that lens and then seek to live in accordance with his perfect justice and then love one another in light of his perfect justice eternally thankful and grateful that we have been spared his ultimate justice because of Jesus Christ. That then gives us a heart and a desire for everyone to know about this mercy and this good news so that they too can experience the mercy of God that's speaking spiritually and ultimately. But as the just God then makes us just, that does then give us kindness and compassion and care for our brothers and sisters and for those who are around us and a desire that there be justice in this world. And so God's going to command Abraham do righteousness and do justice as the condition of the covenant. And so we're going to unpack next week what that means and, and what that looks like. But we have to start with our God, who is perfectly just. But praise God, He is also perfectly merciful and kind and compassionate. Um, and so I pray um, that you would see everything through Him, and I pray that we would read everything through the lens of the wonderful mercy that we have been given through this Son, Jesus Christ, who has taken God's justice for us. Let me stop there. If you would, bow with me, and let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the privilege of proclaiming your word. Father, I don't take that lightly. So I I pray uh, that you would conform me more and more to your word. I pray that you would give me a great understanding of your word so that I, um, to the best of my ability, uh, trusting in your uh, grace, uh, can uh, rightly divide uh, your word and to teach and to proclaim it. Uh, Father, your word is where we find you. Father, you are the God of all comfort. Father, you are the only one in whom we can find hope and joy and peace and identity. And you are the only one in whom uh, there is ultimate justice. And so I pray that we would turn first and foremost to you. I pray that you would give us a great love for you. I pray that you would um, bind us closer and closer to you and closer and closer to your word and that you would fill our hearts and our minds um, with the truth of your word and of who you are. Father, at the same time, I pray that you would soften our hearts. Father, make us kind and compassionate. Father, you have demonstrated great love and concern for others in sending your son to die for us, your sinful and rebellious people. And Father, you tell us in Philippians 2 that we are to be like that. We are to be humble, and we are to put our needs before others and to love um, those around us. So I pray that you would soften our hearts. I pray that you would give all of us great humility, uh, great wisdom, uh, great kindness, and great compassion. Um, Father, as our our world is divided, Lord, and and angry, uh, Father, I pray that we would be a light. I pray that we would speak truth and we would speak wisdom. Um, I pray that you would give us wisdom to do it well, to do it kindly and compassionately, to do it not like... Uh, the world. and I pray that you would use us as your church uh, to draw many people uh, to you. I pray that you would uh, do justice through us, Lord, uh, your people. You would help us to understand uh, what that means as we seek to reflect you to one another and to our world. So Father, help us. I know that many of us have felt overwhelmed in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Father, remind us that you are not overwhelmed. Uh, Remind us that you are not surprised. Uh, remind us that things feel out of control to us, but they are very much in control of you. And so I pray that we would find great safety and security in you as our refuge. And then I pray uh, that you would teach us and train us and equip us and send us out, Lord, uh, to do your will and to do it well, to do it in a way that honors you, and to do it in a way that blesses others. Father, please help us, uh, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.